bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 13th. 2012. I begin this week's podcast with a discussion of how the election results will change the membership of key congressional committees. I'll also discuss some of the comments made last week by Speaker Boehner and President Obama regarding the so-called fiscal cliff. They both gave speeches with broad outlines of their key positions. In the low income housing tax credit section, I'll discuss the relief provided by the IRS for affordable housing property owners who want to provide tax credit units to victims of Hurricane Sandy. I will also remind listeners about an upcoming comment submission deadline and also review the details of a new smoke-free policy announced by Maine Housing. I wonder if this policy is likely to be extended to other states. In this week's historic tax credit section, I'm going to review some of the recovery efforts announced by historic preservation organizations in areas affected by Hurricane Sandy. Then, in our New Market Tax Credit segment, I have additional Hurricane Sandy news. Also, I have good news for listeners who weren't able to attend Novogratz's New Market Tax Credit Conference last month. The conference was held in New Orleans, and we've compiled a recording of the event. The recording is available as a CD-ROM or as an online recording. And finally, In our renewable energy discussion, I'll share some of the renewable energy community's reaction to the election results. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as I promised in last week's podcast, I'm going to begin this week's discussion with a look at the changes in a few key congressional committees in the wake of last week's election. Party conferences will convene before the start of the next Congress to determine exact committee assignments. Now, since the Democrats retain control of the Senate and Republicans retain control of the House in the 113th Congress, we won't see the same type of significant shifts in House and Senate leadership changes that followed the midterm elections in 2010. As a consequence, as you'll see, there's not that much that's changing in key House and Senate leadership posts. So with Republicans still in control of the House, it's expected that Representative Dave Camp will remain chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And similarly, Representative Sandra Levin, a Democrat, will retain the ranking member position. Turning to House Financial Services Committee, Chairman Spencer Baucus is term limited, and early predictions suggest that chairmanship will be passed on to Representative Jeb Henserling. On the ranking member side, Representative Maxine Waters is next in line to assume that post from Representative Barney Frank, who's retiring after 20 years in Congress. Turning to the Senate, since the Democrats still control the Senate, leadership of the Senate Finance Committee is likely to remain unchanged. Senator Max Baucus is expected to stay on as chair of the Senate Finance Committee, and Senator Orrin Hatch 
will likely remain ranking member. The Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs will most likely still be chaired by Senator Tim Johnson, who reports indicate that current ranking member, Senator Richard Shelby, may leave to become ranking member of the Senate Appropriations Committee. In this scenario, Senator Michael Crapo of Idaho would succeed Senator Shelby as ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee. Additional changes will be seen in committee membership stemming from retirements and the result of specific races. While not changing the chairmanship or ranking member, they are due to the fact that committee racials might change and certain seats became available on particular committees. For example, on the House Ways and Means Committee, there may be five slots available for new members, three Republicans and two Democrats. That's because on the Republican side, Representative Wally Herger is retiring. Representative Pete Stark was defeated in his election. Representative Rick Berg and Representative Shelley Berkeley were both defeated seeking election to the Senate. And Representative Jeff Davis had resigned his post earlier in the year. That said, I do say maybe five slots. And that's because there's three Republican and two Democrat seats theoretically available. However, since the Democrats gained a handful of seats in the House, the Republican advantage might go down one seat, such that there's only two seats for uh, Republicans and two for Democrats. Furthermore, it may be that the Democrats lose a seat as well, and the committee itself is simply made smaller, in which case you might have two Republican and only one Democratic seat available. More about that in the coming weeks. Turning to the House Financial Services Committee, there will be about 13 slots available, 8 for Republicans and 5 for Democrats. On the Republican side of that committee, Chairman Spencer Baucus is term limited, Representative Ron Paul retired, Representative Don Manzullo was defeated in the primary, and Representatives Judy Biggert, Nan Hayworth, Robert Dole, Francisco Canseco, and Frank Inta were defeated in the election. The loss of Judy Biggert and Robert Dole were particularly significant to the affordable housing community. On the Democratic side, ranking member Barney Franks retiring, as I mentioned earlier, a big loss to the affordable housing community, as did Representatives Gary Ackerman and Brad Miller. And then also on the Democratic side, Representative Joe Donnelly was elected to the Senate, and Representative Joe Baca was defeated in the last election. Now turning to the Senate Finance Committee, Four membership slots might be available there as well, two Republican and two Democrats. The seats being vacated by Senators Conrad and Jeff Bingaman free up the Democratic seats, and the retirements of Olympia Snow and John Kyle free up the two Republican seats. Now I say maybe two Republican and two Democratic seats because since the Democrats control now 55 seats and the Republicans only have 45 seats, it may be that the Republicans will lose a seat on the Senate Finance Committee, in which case there will only be one seat available for the Republicans. And I say 55 Democrats. It's not 55 Democrats. It's 50-plus Democrats and a couple of independents that are expected to caucus with the Democrats. On the Senate Banking Committee, two seats will become available in the 113th Congress. That's because of the retirement of Senators Daniel Akaka and Senator Herb Cole. Now, these are just a few of the changes to key membership that you can expect in the next Congress. 
We'll report in a future podcast when the new members are chosen to fill these vacancies. I'll also likely tweet and or blog more about this, so stay tuned both on my blog and on my Twitter account. Now I'd like to shift to the fiscal cliff. We don't have that much news yet. The president and congressional leaders are to meet later this week, specifically on Friday, and the House Republicans have their leadership elections later this week, as do the Senate Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate. The House Democrats have postponed their leadership elections until after Thanksgiving. But specifically with respect to fiscal cliff, as expected, immediately following the election last week, House Speaker John Boehner spoke on November 7th, and he called on President Barack Obama to work with lawmakers, including Republicans in the House, to, and I quote here, avert the cliff in a manner that serves as a down payment on and a catalyst for major solutions enacted in 2013 that begin to solve the problem, close quote. So Speaker Boehner is basically suggesting that some agreement be reached before the end of the year, with the final agreement being reached in 2013. Now, Speaker Boehner said that as an alternative to going over the fiscal cliff, lawmakers should make changes to the financial structure of entitlement programs and reform the tax code. Now, despite this call for both sides to work together, however, significant differences remain between their preferred solutions. However, there is a sliver of an opportunity here. In a statement on November 9th, Speaker Boehner underscored that Republicans won't agree to higher income tax rates, and he also mentions rates when he spoke on November 7th. Now, I emphasize that he talked about not agreeing to higher income tax rates. However, he did say that he was open to raising revenue through tax reform. So Speaker Boehner appears open to raising revenue as long as it's done in connection with tax reform and changing the entitlement programs to provide some savings. Now later on November 9th, in his first event at the White House since winning re-election, President Obama invited congressional leaders to meet with him. They're going to meet on Friday. Now in his speech, President Obama indicated he still supports raising taxes on the wealthy, namely those earning more than 250000 annually. However, and this is key, he did not say he was married to raising tax rates. He simply said he was focused on the, the wealthy paying their fair share. Further, in his remarks, the president said, quote, I'm not wedded to every detail of my plan. I'm open to compromise. I'm open to new ideas, close quote. That's why many commentators, myself included, believe that the statements by President Obama and Speaker Boehner create an opening for a deal. We'll see how wide the opening is and if it closes shortly, but right now it appears to be open. Namely, the top rates don't rise above 35%. However, higher income taxpayers have their deductions, exclusions, etc. capped, such that taxes on the wealthy do increase. Now, in the coming days, I'm going to blog some ideas as to how an agreement might come together. The key is going to be to what extent revenue can be raised by limiting deductions and exclusions, etc., and whether or not that amount is enough to keep rates from having to rise above the current 
limit of 35%. In local housing tax credit news, in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg said last week that as many as 40,000 New Yorkers may need to be relocated. Governor Andrew Cuomo's office estimates that the storm caused $33 billion in damage, and that's in New York State alone. Last week, the IRS announced that it will help expand the supply of emergency housing for disaster victims by temporarily releasing localizing tax credit property owners from certain requirements. Owners who wish to provide vacant units to displaced individuals must seek approval from their respective state agency. That's important. With approval from their state housing agency, properties in any state may participate regardless of whether a major disaster occurred there. They can participate as long as the displaced individual resided in, in a jurisdiction designated for individual assistance by FEMA, and the individual was displaced because his or her residence was destroyed or damaged by Hurricane Sandy. The IRS will suspend income limitation requirements for vacant long run tax credit units that are rented to persons meeting these criteria. For units in the first year of the credit period, the displaced household will be deemed a qualified low-income tenant for purposes of determining qualified basis as well as meeting the 2050 or 4060 test. Now, for vacant units after the first year of the credit period, the unit will be treated the same way it was before the displaced household moved in. Therefore, it will not affect the property's applicable fraction. The IRS also will suspend non-transient requirements for temporary housing. Now note, all other Section 42 requirements will continue to apply during the temporary housing period. State housing agencies will determine the length of the temporary housing period for each property, but it won't extend beyond November 30, 2013. It's also important to note that rents for low-income units that house displaced individuals must not exceed their rent-restricted rates established for the low-income units. You can find more details about this in IRS Notice 2012-68. It's available online at www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, as I said in the past, when this disaster relief provision has been applied in other disasters, if you're considering using this rule, please talk to Jim Krogan in our San Francisco office or Thomas Stagg in our Bellevue, Washington office. There are a number of issues related to moving in tenants that don't otherwise meet the income limitations or non-transit requirements. And you'll want to understand the ramifications of those issues before moving tenants in. I'd also like to remind listeners that there's still time to submit comments on IRS Form 8611. You may recall that the Internal Revenue Service invited public comments on Form 8611 in September. Long-buzzing tax credit property owners use Form 8611 when they have to report recapture of part of the long-buzzing tax credit claimed in previous years. That's if the property is disposed of or fails to meet certain requirements during the 15-year compliance period. No changes to the form have been proposed at this time, and comments must be received by the IRS by November 16th. Now let's go to Maine and talk about smoke-free housing. The Maine State Housing Authority announced a new smoke-free policy that will apply to all future units built using low-income housing tax credits. As approved as part of its 2013 Qualified Allocation Plan, Maine Housing requires low-income housing tax credit applicants to prohibit smoking in all units and common areas of the development. Maine Housing says the ban is designed to protect residents 
from secondhand smoke and to prevent costly repairs to units that are damaged by indoor smoking. Applicants will be required to include a non-smoking clause in each lease and provide residents with educational materials on tobacco treatment programs. For the past five years, Maine Housing offered incentives to low-income residential applicants who created 100% smoke-free buildings. However, this is the first time that the agent has banned smoking across the board in all low-income housing tax credit properties. Now, you may recall from the podcast on October 9th that the Department of Housing and Urban Development requested comments and information on implementing smoke-free policies in public housing. This may mean that although Maine is the first state to require a smoking ban, other states could soon follow suit. In historic tax credit news, as the states affected by Hurricane Sandy begin to recover from the damage caused by the storm, several organizations have begun the work of assessing damage to the area's historic properties. In New York, on its website, the New York State Historic Preservation Office notes that while the immediate need for safety, shelter, and basic services are top priorities, the repair and rehabilitation of homes, businesses, and other buildings is critical to advancing comprehensive recovery efforts. The agency notes that some of the most severely affected areas contain thousands of older properties, many of which are historic or located in historic communities and neighborhoods. Helping communities preserve and renew historic resources is central to the mission of the New York State Historic Preservation Office. And as such, it says its programs and services have the potential of offering important rehabilitation tools to assist property owners during the extensive process of recovery and repair. In addition to the information and technical assistance available through its website, the State Historic Preservation Office offers a number of links and documents to help property owners address a variety of storm-related issues, including planning for much-needed rehabilitation work. Turning to New Jersey, Preservation New Jersey, a historic preservation organization, has posted links to disaster recovery resources for those impacted by Hurricane Sandy including links to resources specifically for historic properties. For example, there are links to FEMA's Environmental Planning and Historic Preservation Program and the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation's list of Federal Financial Assistance for Historic Preservation Projects. There's also a link to the National Trust for Historic Preservation's series of online resource guides tailored to specific disaster scenarios, including floods, earthquakes, and hurricanes. Turning to Maryland, the Maryland Historical Trust announced last week that it's working to gather information about properties affected by Hurricane Sandy. Owners of historic properties that sustain damage are encouraged to visit the Maryland Historical Trust's Hurricane Preparedness and Disaster Recovery webpage and fill out a hurricane damage report. It's a form that will alert trust staff to the property's condition. The group says it's planned to use these forms for recovery efforts and to work in consultation with both FEMA and the state equivalent to help connect property owners with recovery resources as they become available. The Maryland Historical Trust said it's working to identify other available resources to help with damage recovery costs, as well as they said they'll make the information available as soon as they get it. In West Virginia, the Preservation Alliance of West Virginia is asking owners of historic properties that were compromised by the recent storm to contact them. The Alliance is trying to obtain as much information about the damage done to historic properties as possible. The group says it will be sharing the information with the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the West Virginia State Historic Preservation Office 
to assess the damage and provide assistance. And as I mentioned, stay tuned for a Hurricane Sandy relief bill that might include a larger or higher historic tax credit rate to aid in recovery efforts. In new market tax credit news, the new market tax credit community is working on a proposal from Senator Chuck Schumer of New York and Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey to provide additional tax credit authority for hurricane recovery in the Northeast, similar to the Gozon legislation that was passed following Hurricane Katrina. Reports indicate that Congress will consider providing federal disaster recovery resources for the region affected by Hurricane Sandy during the lame duck session, and it's rumored that the so-called Sandy Supplemental Bill could provide an additional round of new market tax credit authority for the next three years. Senator Schumer's staff may also draft a provision for a special $8 per capita allocation of localizing tax credits for designated counties, so not only additional allocation of new markets, but also additional allocation of localizing tax credits. And to that end, you can look for historic tax credit percentages of a higher amount to be included as well, as they were also included with a GoZone provision. I invite you to stay tuned for more details. And as the situation develops, I'll provide updates via Twitter and my blog. I think you know my blog. It's at novogradic.wordpress.com. And of course, future podcasts will include more details. Now, for those of you that were not able to attend Novogradic's New Market Tax Credit Conference last month in New Orleans, we have good news. Now, the event featured conversations crucial to today's industry. It had topics such as the future and viability of the program amid budget concerns, namely, are we going to get an extension or not? We talked about exit strategies for new market tax credit properties, transaction structures for businesses, as well as real estate, qualified low-income community investments, and there's a whole bunch more. Though you may not have been able to attend in person, you're not completely left out. We have a recording of many of the conference panels. We have recordings of the keynote address by the CDFI Fund's Bob Ibanez, among the others. You can order a CD-ROM of the conference online by going to www.novaco.com products. I know we have both a CD-ROM version as well as an online version of the recordings. In Renewable Energy Cash Credit news, last week I was in Washington, D.C., the Novogratic Financing Renewable Energy Conference. One of the main topics of conversation, naturally, was what the election results will mean for renewable energy tax credits. Now, we're currently complying a recording of the panel discussions, and those recordings will be available for purchase later this month. In the meantime, I wanted to share some of the reactions to the election from leaders of two renewable energy industry organizations. Ron Resch, President and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association, made a statement following the election, noting that solar power has seen tremendous growth since President Obama took office, increasing by 400%. He also lauded the Obama administration's policy to allow solar installations for the first time on public lands, which he said has, and I quote, been a great driver of this growth. On the wind side, Denise Bode, CEO of the American Wind Energy Association, AWEA, applauded the news that several wind champions were re-elected to Congress, including Representatives Dave Reichart, Steve King, Tom Latham, and Senator Dean Heller. 
At the time of this recording, it was expected that Congress would consider a tax incentive package during its current lame-duck session that could include an extension of the production tax credit. However, it's unclear what the chances are that they'll reach agreement before adjourning. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.